Welcome back to We the Museum, a podcast for museum workers who want to form a more perfect institution. I'm your host, Hannah Hathman, owner and executive producer at Better Lemon Creative Audio, where I make podcasts for museums, history organizations, and other cultural nonprofits. We're currently in between seasons, but I'm working on recording new episodes for season two, so stay tuned, coming soon, etc., etc. And while you eagerly wait, I thought we'd do something a little different, a little fun. As some of you might know, I have a master's in Viking and medieval Norse studies from the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. I had the time of my life living and studying in Iceland from 2013 to 2015. And when I left, I really missed it. So in 2017, I went back for nine months to do a Fulbright. And that's when I started podcasting. I had a show called Museums in Strange Places, which is still online, by the way, if you want to check it out. I interviewed people at, I think, 25 different Icelandic museums. And that's what led me to a full-time job producing podcasts for museums, which is what I still do now. One of my classmates from the master's program in 2013 also went on to have an interesting career journey inspired by Icelandic museums, but unlike me, she managed to stay in Iceland after our program wrapped up. Katie Teeter is American, she's from the Midwest, and she's been living in Iceland for 10 years. I called her up to chat about her experiences working in Icelandic museums and getting a master's in museum studies from the University of Iceland. By the way, if y'all like this episode, I was thinking I could maybe turn it into an occasional series where I talk to museum workers around the world. So please do let me know what you think via email or social media. This episode is sponsored by Landslide Creative. Landslide Creative provides custom website design and development for museums and cultural organizations who want to increase their engagement and connect with their visitors, donors, and volunteers. With a custom website designed for the unique needs of your museum, you can stop fighting with your website and focus on growing your impact. So head over to landslidecreative.com to learn more. Cool. All right. So do you want to introduce yourself? Who are you? What are you about? Yes. Hi, my name is Katie Teeter. I'm an American living in Iceland, and I am all about everything museum. So I'm going to get to your origin story in a minute, but <laughs> what what kind of museum work have you been involved in in Iceland? What kind of museum-y things, like, you know, what's your connection to the field there? So right now I'm working, my full-time job is working as a science communicator in sales and marketing for the geothermal exhibition, which is a private exhibition located in the largest geothermal power plant in Iceland. So I do a lot of fun and different things there. I'm also getting my second master's degree now in museum studies from the University of Iceland. And through that, I have an internship at Big the Sap which is like a regional heritage museum in Reykjanesbæir. And then I've been working on a couple of research projects um, with the Icelandic Research and Innovation Organization, getting some publications done, just a little of this and a little of that. That's so cool. You got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. All fun things. Yeah. So we'll get to your origin story. You and I came to Iceland at about the same time, 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. to do a master's in medieval Icelandic studies, medieval Viking Norse studies. What has happened over the last 10 years? How'd you end up staying in Iceland? How'd you end up getting into museum work? What's the, what's the story? Yeah. So yes, I came to get the master's in medieval Icelandic studies. 
and then met my husband, who's Icelandic. And so one year turned into 10 very quickly. <laughs> and I really liked all of the medieval stuff, but I didn't really want to do a PhD and I wasn't sure kind of what I wanted to do. So I ended up working in the tourism industry and I ended up in sales for a whale watching company. And then after some time, they acquired Whales of Iceland, which is another exhibition in downtown Reykjavik in the Granti area. And so I was doing a bit with them, uh, like just in sales or kind of events, things like that. And then COVID came. And so like everybody else in the tourism industry in Iceland, I was let go for a time. And that kind of made me reevaluate my priorities. And I decided that I wanted to go back into something I was maybe a bit more passionate about. So that led me to the second master's degree in museum studies. And at first it was just going to be a one-year postgraduate diploma. And then I just like completely fell in love. It was so cool. Everyone in the industry was so kind and passionate and welcoming and open. And yeah, it just opened a door for a million cool possibilities. So I, yeah, I dove right in. It's funny, you know, opening door for a million cool possibilities. Because although I've never worked in a museum in Iceland, as some people listening might know, I started my whole like podcast journey by going around and interviewing all the really cool, weird, awesome, special museum people in Iceland at their museums. And that just launched me into this whole world of possibility and opportunity in terms of podcasts and museums. Um, so I know very well that there's so many cool museums and museum people in Iceland. But in your words, tell me about museums in Iceland. Like, what's there? How, you know, do you know about how many there are? What's unique? What, you know, how would you describe the museum world in Iceland? Yeah, so there are three different categories of museums here. You have the principal museum. So there are three of those. And those are like the most official, I guess you could say. So they're kind of the guiding forces in each of their respective fields. So there's culture, heritage, and history. There's the natural sciences or natural history. And then there's art. And then you have accredited museums. I can't remember how many, between 40 and 60 maybe. Uh, and so they have an official recognition from Sapporov, which is the museum council. And then you have private exhibitions. And technically, by definition, if you're not accredited, you're an exhibition. You can't be called a museum, mm. although it's kind of the Wild West with that out here. So you, you know, no one's really keeping close track of that. <laughs> and I think me and my friend were talking about this the other day. And I think it's like over 250 if you count principal, accredited, and private. Wow. But then there's also temporary or pop-up exhibitions. Uh, you know, the number kind of fluctuates a bit. Yeah. I know there's been a lot of new private exhibitions in the last 10 years. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I just listened to your podcast on the Penis Museum. Yeah. Both of them actually. Yeah. Not hilarious. my favorite, but <laughs> one I went to. But So bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good sample. Like, I think in Iceland, there's this sort of mentality of if you want to do something, you just do it. Yeah. And that ends up with a lot of weird, fun stuff. And it's interesting. The private museums seem to, like, at least when I was there, run from, again, the Penis Museum and the guy who has a rock collection in the gas station building mm -hmm. on the side up to, like, the, the like, very expensive, um, more corporate, not necessarily bad, but the ones that are funded by companies or designed to make money. Like the whale exhibition maybe might have been like that, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. um, or mm -hmm. I think there was a volcano exhibition going up. And for people listening, Iceland has like 330,000 people, 350, right? I think now we're up to 390. So, okay. So, but even 400,000 people spread out on the, in the entire country. So that's a lot of museums for what would be, you know, a medium-sized city uh, in the U.S. It's a crazy number. And that's also in my opinion, maybe a bit problematic mm. uh, because there are so many accredited museums 
that don't receive enough funding. Oh, okay. So I think the, it means that the resources are spread a bit thinly. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, with the private exhibitions, like the one that I'm working with now, it's a corporate exhibition. So it's owned by the company that we're kind of situated inside of. So it's like a very, I don't know, a different access to resources, let's say. Yeah. So what has it been like working? Let's talk about your experiences working these um, private exhibitions. And then also you're, you're working with the local history museum right now as well, right? So what has it been like? Highlights, lowlights. <laughs> yeah, both of them I absolutely love. I think they're very different, but really, really fun. For the internship, the museum where I'm interning at, they have two full-time employees to do everything. And so that's collections management. That's putting up exhibitions, uh, installations, social media, funding, meeting with the municipality. It's like, it's a crazy, crazy amount of work that these two people are doing and they're doing such a good job. And then if you compare that to the exhibition where I work that's private, there's like, I don't know, maybe four full-time staff members and then between five and six additional part-time staff members that come there's a lot more access to funding for things that the museum or the exhibition actually needs. So it's a lot easier to get things done in that way. But I think overall, the museum industry in Iceland, it's maybe not one that you go into if you want to make a lot of money, but it's driven by passion. And that's what's so exciting about it, because there are just so many people who are so into what they're doing. And that makes a really big difference if you come to work or an internship or whatever, and you're surrounded by people that love what they do. Yeah. So give us a taste of... Um working at the the local exhibition or the local museum what are they sharing what are they doing who's their audience and what you know what kind of things are you doing when you when you head over there so right now they're in a bit of a transitional period and it's really exciting they're going to completely change their permanent exhibition i think it's going to open in 2025 and it's a local heritage and history or cultural museum for the area so it's like Keflavik Njarðvík some other towns, I can't remember exactly what the names are. So this is just just kind of outside of Reykjavik, Keflavik's the city where you fly into, for anyone, if you've flown into Iceland, that's where you've come through. Exactly. And that's, I think it has so much potential because a lot of people have layovers at the airport. The airport is maybe a 10-minute drive, maybe 15 max. So once it's open, it could potentially be a really nice stop for tourists that are coming and have a layover. It has in the past been mostly geared towards fishing because that's, of course, been a really important part of the local history. But that's also a bit of a pet peeve of mine because I think a lot of these cultural heritage museums focus on a very limited time frame and it's all about fishing and it's all about men in the fishing mm, industry. Yeah, It's so much more than that. And so I think with this new permanent exhibition, they're going to really expand what cultural history and heritage mean for the museum. So I think it's going to be really exciting. In terms of what I do when I go in there, I've been learning a lot in Softbread, which is how you officially register and catalog objects. It's like a national database for accredited museums. Uh, I've gotten to help assemble things for temporary exhibitions, help install a few things, and just kind of see behind the scenes, see how much work actually goes on in an accredited museum like that. Their collection is huge. I think it's at least 50,000 objects. Wow, that's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. And they do a lot of work with it. So it's also fun to just go through and see the stuff that they have in there because the U.S. base was in Keplavik. Mm -hmm. So their collection is really unique in that way because they have a lot of things related to that that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. Mm, yeah. I, I always thought it was really interesting how little the American presence, not to be like, we should be celebrated, but how little the American 
presence over the years was kind of visible in the museums and stuff. I understand not wanting to highlight that, but um, it, you know, it was an influential presence and kind of makes some things make sense about Iceland. Mm -hmm. And one of the staff members there, Holly, he used to work at the base. Oh, wow. So just this incredible source of information and stories and like, it's just so fun to hear him talk about it. Yeah, because I think they they left in two, 2006, right? I think so, yes. Yeah, so it was there from like World War II to 2006. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big amount of time and a very big cultural influence. It, a lot of people worked there. I think it makes sense to mention that, at least in part of it. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of interested by Sarpur, the, the, the national database. So is, does this mean that all the accredited museums kind of have access to the cataloging of each other's collections and can kind of reference that? Exactly. So if you are looking for a specific type of object for an exhibition, you can go into Sarpur and maybe see if another museum has something that you're looking for and then place a request to borrow it or to have more information or whatever it is you need. Yeah, I love the sharing of resources. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Always a big thing. So let's talk about let's talk about museum studies. What has it been like to, I know you haven't done museum studies in the U.S., so you can't compare, but tell us about your program and what's involved and what you're learning and what's it like to do museum studies in Iceland. It is awesome. There's no other word for it. It's like the most fun I've ever had in a university setting. Again, I think it's partly that everybody that's there really wants to be there. It's like a very kind of passionate thing. It was also interesting because when we did the medieval Icelandic studies, that was all taught in English. Mm-hmm. This is all in Icelandic. So all of the lectures are in Icelandic, a lot of the readings as well. I can submit everything in English. I communicate mostly in English. Okay. Um, but it's been a really kind of sharp learning curve. So that's been also a fun kind of challenge as well. And so you take all kinds of courses, um, things about cultural history, curating, museum ethics, applied kind of museum scenarios in Iceland. What was your kind of your like language level when you started the program? So I can speak enough to get by. I think I still will always sound a little bit like a young child, not conjugating everything completely correctly, but I'm understandable in terms of like an academic setting and writing in an academic level in Icelandic. I'm just not there, but they're very flexible and they've been really helpful. And so everything I submit is in English and that hasn't been a problem. And then it just takes me much longer to listen to the lectures and kind of translate as I'm going or to translate some of the texts, but it's been completely fine. I'm sure it's been a, a big boost to your language ability mm-hmm. as well when you're kind of immersed in that and forced to. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I worked in the tourism industry for a really long time uh, before the whale watching company as well. And if I compare working in tourism and being in the museum sector, there's a lot less xenophobia in the museum sector than in tourism. Oh, interesting. You'd think it'd maybe be the opposite way or something. Exactly. I'm not sure why it is, but it's very nice. Yeah. I guess I guess you're less dependent fully on foreigners and their whims if you're not in tourism. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. But it's been very nice. And when are you done with your program? How long do you have left? Uh, so next spring, I'll be finishing the thesis. Okay. And what's your thesis on? All right. So here we go. <laughs> Explain. Um, <laughs> It's still in the very early stages right now, but I have a really awesome supervisor. I'm super excited to work with her. I'm looking at historical empathy in museums. Oh. And so I'm going to be, right now at least, the plan is going to be looking at the National Museum and then Aupaisa, which is like the kind of a, an open air museum. Yep. So like a living history museum for in, 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 in American. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
um, yeah, looking at how historical empathy is fostered within the two different museums and what that means for visitor experience. So I'm going to be, I think, doing some visitor surveys, um, just trying to see how people feel about the past and the people of the past after their visits. And I think there's still this tendency to view people of the Viking Age as kind of lacking emotions or emotional depth, mm. which is just not true. Yeah. So I think it's a very important part of museum work to make these people people. You know, they're not just Vikings. They're complex people with emotional backgrounds and relationships and experiences. Yeah, and that goes all the way up through uh, the entire history of the island and of everywhere. And I think that's probably a challenge that everywhere everyone strives, like has to struggle with is humanizing the people of the past, complicating the people of the past. Exactly. That's really interesting. But what a fun challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything particularly interesting um, you found so far or any? So one of my colleagues and I, Francesca Stepani, we last year were working on a paper on emotion in Viking Age exhibitions. So we were looking at the National Museum, the Settlement Exhibition, and the Saga Museum. And I think the most interesting thing that we found there is that, so the National Museum is a principal museum, the Settlement Exhibition is accredited, and the Saga Museum is a private exhibition. Mm. And the amount of sort of visible emotion in the museums was proportional to the status. Oh, interesting. So the Saga Museum had the most emotional expression within the actual exhibits, the National Museum the least. Mm. So that was really interesting. But because just the scope of that paper didn't allow for visitor interactions or interviews, I'm really looking forward to going more in depth with that in the thesis. But initially, why do you think that is that difference between the three? I think, I mean, just my opinion, yeah. I think that these accredited institutions or the principal museums, they have a lot more, like their reputation is super important. And they don't want to, at least I don't think they want to be perceived as putting out factually incorrect information or stuff mm. that you can't completely prove. So the National Museum takes a really archaeological approach to especially the Viking Age history. The Settlement Exhibition, it's a little bit more in between. They have more, but still not a lot. And I think with the Saga Museum, it's maybe less historical accuracy, more just a lot of fun. Yeah, they have like mannequins, right? Yeah, with, yeah it's like these big... To represent the, the characters from the sagas, which are like semi-fictional. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, you have like even the soundscape, like the background noise in the Saga Museum, depending on what stop you're at, it's people screaming, it's swords clashing, it's women crying. It's like they go all in and it's really fun. That's interesting because the settlement exhibition also has like background noise, but it's very subtle. Maybe like some tools working, some birds, the wind, the water. Um, it's very it's very quiet, actually. Exactly. And the settlement exhibition, yeah, it's it's really quiet, but they do have these sort of video panels in the walls with these kind of white ghost-like figures reenacting different things. Hmm. So there's a little bit of emotion that visitors can infer from that. And then... I mean, um, there's not zero emotion in the National Museum, but it's definitely the least. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably something that museums all over the world uh, struggle with, that balance between, you know, objectivity and, and reputation or authority, you know, of the museum mm -hmm. and wanting to get to human expression and um, emotions in the past, but being historically accurate. You know, how do you allow for people to think about people from the past in that way without making stuff up or just, you know, assuming 
you know, how do you make that distinction? It's uh... exactly it's it's difficult, but it's important. And I think it's it's fun to look into. Yeah. Um, it's cool mm-hmm. to see similar challenges across um, across international museum fields. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your experiences in Iceland. And I hope I can come back and check out more of the museums soon. Yes. Thank you so much for doing this. And it's good to catch up. Thanks for listening to We the Museum. You've been listening to a bonus episode with Katie Teeter, an American museum professional in Iceland. For show notes and a transcript of this episode, visit the show website, wethemuseum.com. In the show notes, I've linked to all the museums Katie and I mentioned, both the academic programs we mentioned, and my old podcast on Icelandic museums, Museums in Strange Places. Again, if you liked this bonus episode and want to hear from more museum people working around the world, let me know. I'm also actively looking for cool stories to feature in season two of the podcast, so if your museum has done something interesting or innovative in the last year or two, please get in touch. A big thank you to our show sponsor, Landslide Creative. Making a podcast takes a lot of time and energy, and I wouldn't be able to set aside the space to make this show without Landslide Creative's financial support. If your museum is considering a new website, definitely make Landslide Creative your first stop. Finally, I've been your host, Hannah Hefman. As owner and executive producer at Better Lemon Creative Audio, I help museums and other cultural organizations plan, produce, and edit podcasts that advance their mission. Find out more about my work at betterlemonaudio.com.